Probably about eight years ago, the elders and the pastors of this church told me that basically you're going to die soon, and before you die, we want some books out of you. Well, to tell a man whose father had written a bunch of books that sold well that you have to write is kind of depressing because you know you can't write as well as your dad did. And uh, so I've been working especially the last few years, on a book on fatherhood. And um, it was depressing for me to work on it this week because at one point in what I'm going to read to you, it said that Joseph is now 27 years old. And so I had to change it to 30 years old because three years, almost four, have passed since I've been working on this. And so it's, it's, it's very different from writing other stuff. Um, so at the end of the week, I was talking to Mary Lee on the phone, and I was trying to think about what to preach today. Um, because preaching should have a context. It shouldn't be just sort of truth for the ages. It should be truth for us right here right now. And I was going to preach on 1 Corinthians, and then I thought about what's happening today. (laughs) And it was very clear I should not preach from 1 Corinthians. Because today is a wonderful day in the life of our church. It's just drop-dead gorgeous. And the reason is that today we have repentance. And repentance is always the most joyful time in the life of a church because the whole world hates repentance and that's probably an indication that the church of Jesus Christ loves repentance. And uh, we have a couple getting married this morning that have the wonderful joy of having beginning their marriage without any option of being proud. And it's such a sweet gift. Mary Lee and I have been through that. It's such a sweet gift to not have to wear the burden of pride at the beginning of a wedding ceremony. And so we look at what's going on in our church, and then I know what's going on in some of your lives today. And what I want to do today is I want to say to you that this man, this poor man, has experienced the mercy. Just completely. And I'm emotional today for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is I don't have to do any translation to put myself in this young couple's shoes. I just completely understand. And I want to say to all of you here today, old and young, that God is powerful. (laughs) And he just doesn't even get bothered And if you don't know what I'm talking about, find some of the YouTube aficionados here and find out what what I'm talking about. But there's this woman. Where's Esther? What's her name, Esther? What's her name? Bubby Kaufman? Kaufman? And and she has these routines. And she says, she doesn't say bothered. She says, bothered. You know? Yeah. Well, anyhow, actually, it's not the same one I'm thinking about. But find my wife or somebody, you'll find out what it is. But God is not bothered. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, is anything too hard for God? And you ask a question like that when you know the answer. And the answer is, there is nothing that is too hard for God. And if we could tell you, a lot of times as pastors and elders, we're not able to tell you some of the things. If we could tell you, I was talking to a pastor earlier today and saying to him, never in my ministry have I ever heard of something so glorious as what has happened with some of the people here today. I've never heard of it in my ministry. It's that beautiful. And what is it? It's repentance. Would you guys put that up, please? Those of you who are here regularly know that a couple months ago I told you about being reduced to complete brokenness out in Southern California back in about 1974. And 
I was working day and night on the same job site, night watchman, hod carrier during the day. I had a, a two or three weeks of 102 degree temperature. It wasn't going away. I was taking so many antibiotics that all the bacteria had died in my body, and so my mouth was filled with sores, so I couldn't even eat. All I could eat was jello and yogurt. I only weighed 160 at the time, and I had no friends. It was horrible. And I told you that at that time, I finally, God broke me. So it was the most precious time of my life. God broke me. And I gave him my idol. And you remember what my idol was? My idol was Mary Lee, who's now my wife. And that's, that's like God, that when we trust him and worship him, he gives us the desires of our hearts, you, you realize. But first, I had to kill the idol. Or he killed the idol. <laughs> I couldn't kill the idol. I tried for years. It didn't work. So in that room, you remember... I got down on my knees, I was going to kill myself, or I was going to become a complete, utter, insert the obscenity for that kind of person that you know in your life, heartless, cruel, and selfish, or I was going to repent. So I repented. I don't know what happened then, I don't know if it was regenerated then or back when I was five when I asked Jesus, I don't, I don't understand. The wind blows where it wills, you know? Remember somebody once said that? You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, and so it is with the work of the Spirit. But I repented that day. And then I opened my Bible, and I don't recommend this, although Augustine and I both did it. (laughs) So I opened my Bible, and here's what I read. Blessed are all they that fear the Lord. Now listen, people. Here's your problem. This is why this church isn't packed. You think that you have to hide the fear of God in order for people to become Christians. And so there's like this dissonance between what happens here Sunday morning is what your expectations are. And you think that if you hide the fear of God and then bring them to church and they become Christians, then, then they're like, uh-uh. The problem is you have to be convinced that no one ever comes to God until they fear God. It never is true that you flee to the cross of Christ until you know what you're fleeing from. (laughs) And what you're fleeing from is your wicked heart. And so you have to introduce people to the fear of God in order for them to love God. Because not until they fear God do they see that it's hopeless. That they can never be good enough to please God. Then, all of a sudden, the cross makes sense, right? And so my father had raised me to fear God. I open up my Bible that night, right? And here's what I read. Blessed are all they that fear the Lord. And I was blessed to have a father that as I grew up, you know one of the things he would say to me all the time? He would say to me, it is a fearful thing to the fall into the hands of the living God. Imagine having such a good father. (laughs) It's a quote from scripture. And my father was teaching me to fear God. Now I said in the earlier service, we have two services. I said in the early one, I don't think there's more than half of 1% of fathers in in the country who are evangelicals whose children even know that statement. And then I said to Wayne Huck, who's an elder here, your children know it. He said, no. I wonder if any of you know that from your father. Okay. Nate Crum said yes. Anybody else from their father? Your father repeated this to you as you were growing up. Blessed are all they that fear the Lord and do walk in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labors of thine own hands. Remember, my my mouth filled with sores. Oh, well is thee, and happy art thou. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine. Remember, this is the text that I opened to when I opened my Bible that night when I repented. This, and so God was giving me this, this, this chapter of Scripture as my promise. It was absolutely clear to me that God said to me, this verse, this text, 
This chapter is my promise to you. So here I come. Thy wife shall be as the fruitful vine. And you can understand at the time, I just, I couldn't conceive of me having a wife. When I looked at what I had done with my life, I just couldn't even conceive of it. I had completely ruined my life. And you say, well, you know, a 21-year-old guy can't completely ruin his life. Any of you lived in Southern California? <laughs> Upon the walls of thine house, thy children shall be like olive branches. And I have to explain to you that an olive tree is like a basswood tree. Have any of you cut down a basswood tree? You cut down a basswood tree and immediately just infinite numbers of shoots come up out of the trunk. And so the image is that the olive tree, you try to cut it down, it just sends so many shoots out. It's a great image for Christians in in our wicked day. You know, they try to cut us down and then all these little children come up out out of the... It's like, what? Those breeders, you know? That's what homosexuals call us, breeders, you know? Yep. Yep. Thy children shall be like olive branches round about thy table. Thus shall the man be blessed that fears the Lord. (laughs) And I thought, no, it's impossible. Look at what I've done to my life. How could God do that to me? The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. Zion is the place of God's dwelling. And thou shalt see Jerusalem. The place of God's dwelling. In great prosperity all thy life long. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children. And peace be upon Israel. Amen. You know, before the service, I come up here. I go across the back. And there's Hannah and Lucas. And the little baby. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is my children's children. And so those of you that know me this morning, you know that God has kept every single promise he ever made me. That's God. And Satan, he always lies. I can't get this into your heads. Satan promises out that, you know, Satan is like Obama at a State of the Union address. You know, we're going to take you to the zoo. We're going to take you to Japan. We're going to take you to China. We're going to take you everywhere. Yup, 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 yup. It's just pandering. And that's Satan. Now, I'm not saying Obama is Satan. <laughs> I want to be very clear about that. What I am saying is the method that every politician, including George Bush, remember the pharmaceutical plans, every politician panders to us and promises us everything. And never can fulfill it. You want to hear about this? Talk to, what is that position that they, come on, now tell us, what's the position? You just tell them what the position. Oh, man. He says, which one? The Portugal. Tell them what you're going to do in Portugal. So he's on this commission that Portugal was just put together to keep them from going the way of Greece. So is Greece going to be able to fulfill all their obligations? He's an economist, all right, a professor over at the University of Bonn. Are they going to be able to fulfill what they've promised to their people? This is Satan. Do you understand it? He always promises and never makes good. And then you remember what I just said, guys. I said every single promise of God to me. Every single one God fulfills you see the world and our heavenly father and there the two shall never meet they'll never meet they'll never meet okay and so you look at this and here's my wife there she is and who's in your lap Children's children, it doesn't matter which one. We've got how many so far? Eleven. And there's that son sitting next to her. Okay, so now you hear, you see, you understand that all of us are what? We're works in progress of God, right? Now, 
what I'm supposed to do is write a book on fatherhood. And as I thought about you this morning, I thought, I want to read you the first chapter, okay? And for two reasons. Number one, a number of you here today, you need to realize that God is the God of new beginnings. All right? God is the God of new beginnings. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold! All things are new. Okay? And number two, I want you to feel like you're getting your money's worth out of me. So if you're paying me to do what the elders and the other pastors tell me to do, and Jake, oh man, did I think about Jake for the last week and a half. (laughs) Young men's expectations. Jake has written the outline for this book, so I'm always beating my head against Jake's outline, you know. He won't recognize it when he reads it, but that's all right. So what I want to do is I want to read this to you because every single one of you today is having to make a decision for this day whether you will believe the promises of God, whether you will be a son to God's fatherhood, and it calls women sons, it also calls them daughters, or whether you will think that you have to make a pact with Satan and go dark in order to get what you want. That's always the question for us. And it's a question for women just as much as men. Now, I'm, in this book, I'm doing something that Scripture does, which is it's written to men. Because, you see, if I did like all evangelicals do today, and I wrote to women, women do buy 70% of the books in the evangelical market. If I wrote to women, men wouldn't read it. But if I write to men, funny thing, the Bible's written to men, and how many women here read the Bible? You see, it works that way. That's part of God's plan. And so it is written to men, but women, please understand you're included. All right, here we go. He created them, this is Genesis 5-2, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. He named the man and the woman man. The, Greek, the Hebrew word is Adam. All right? The same as the name for Adam. And he answered, that's, that's Genesis 5 too. And then Matthew 19, 4, Jesus reiterates it. He says this, And he, Jesus, answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What a perfect statement from our Lord for our day today. Haven't you read? <laughs> and what drove the campus wild about the chalking that you did for Doug Wilson's meeting? It's that you used the symbol for man and the symbol for wood, woman, and you said sexual by design. You didn't say gender by choice. You understand this? It's a boy. It took a while to sink in a boy. Mary Lee had given birth to a boy. Our firstborn was a six-year-old girl, and so we'd had some time to get used to raising a girl. We were fine with girls. We played with Heather. We listened to her and laughed with her. She was the greatest joy we'd ever known, and she suited us just fine. Still does. But now that we had a boy, I was fearful. Before he was born... Things were fine. I didn't have to teach him then. I didn't have to watch my failures being reproduced in him just yet. But what about after he was born? What then? Oh, no, I thought. What am I going to do with a boy? I don't have a clue how to raise a son. Although Mary Lee and I had both been raised in godly homes, the two of us were typical products of the 60s. We thought people made too much of what we condescendingly referred to as sex roles in marriage and in family life. People needed to think less about who was the man and who was the woman. Conceited about our unusually enlightened existence as two human beings, we looked down on people who needed to think in binary ways 
Male and female, for instance, sure, it was still important that the right body parts were there in the marriage bed wedding night. But beyond that, biology, we knew, was absolutely not destiny. Men and women were essentially the same, and we were not going to allow anyone to box us in with gender stereotypes. And so then, prisoners of our great progressiveness, Mary Lee and I took pride in not dividing any of our responsibilities along the old husband-wife lines. What this meant in practice was that we sorted everything out by fighting. Nothing was a given due to our sexual identity, nothing other than marital intimacy, pregnancy, childbirth, and nursing the baby. Other matters, such as who is going to do the dishes, check the oil, cook dinner, change the sheets, do the laundry, write the checks, and balance the checkbook, were all matters of negotiation. Even when we walked together, we had tension between us over who would set the pace. It didn't occur to us that sex, that biological bifurcation of manhood and womanhood by which God marks us in the womb was a gift in sorting out who did what. As we saw it, we were way above all the old man-woman stereotypes. We were going to be different. We were going to be more evolved, more in tune with the androgynous spirit of our age. And listen, I am being completely sarcastic because it's utterly repulsive to me to remember what we were like. Okay? With this second pregnancy, we were seven years into marriage and the hard realities of married life had been used by God and his great mercy to alter our idealism just a little. Now, let me stop and and make an aside here. In order to understand what I'm going to read to you next, you have to have a backstory. The backstory is that uh, when I was still single, I went to live with uh, Mary Lee's brother and and sister-in-law up in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And at the time, Peter and Sharon were very poor, and they were trying to scratch a living from from the land as farmers, but neither of them had grown up on a farm, and it's very difficult to do. One of the things that they tried to do was raise corn, and they they raised some corn, but they had a very old uh, Oliver tractor. Anybody ever heard of Oliver's? And they only had a two-row corn picker. So Peter and I spent the day picking corn, and when it got to the end of the day, Peter wanted to put the corn picker up in the hay mow, up in the upper part of of, of the barn. Well, there was a grass ramp with retainer walls, concrete on each side, and I was driving the tractor, and the corn picker was offset to the side. So I'm on the tractor facing out into the field. The barn's behind me. The corn picker is going up the ramp, and I'm sort of off the side of the ramp, and it's dicey because it's a fairly steep ramp, and I'm backing up, and, you know. And all of a sudden, Peter's off on the ramp on the far side, and all of a sudden I see the wheel of the corn picker over by Peter go whoop, whoop, like that. I know I've run over something. I don't know what I've run over. I do know that their St. Bernard, Peter ran over the St. Bernard with the tractor a couple months earlier. The dog lived. It was amazing. Big rear wheels, not the front ones, (laughs) you know. And so at that point, I just let the clutch out. I thought, whatever I did, it's done. There's nothing to worry about anymore. Well, then, as it got past where Peter was standing, I saw. Now, you remember back, uh, you know, the Rodale organic gardening magazines and everything. You remember that they, you know, they made their living off of ads for the Garden Way Research little wheelbarrow. Had big bicycle wheel wheels on the side. It's made of plywood, and it had, like, metal over the top of the plywood. And you could put your car in that wheelbarrow. And Peter and Sharon had one of them. It was completely uncharacteristic. They had no money. None, none, none. But they had that priceless wheelbarrow. And of course, that's what I'd run over. Boop, boop, and it was gone. It was completely gone. And so once I shut off the tractor, I went over to Peter. I said, Peter, you saw me. You knew I was going to run over the wheelbarrow. Why didn't you stop me? He was right there watching it happen. And he said, well, I figured if you wanted help, you'd ask for it. Woo! 
And you can imagine I never forgot that. <laughs> you know, if you wanted, I thought, file this information. Peter will have to be asked for advice, okay? He was the most non-evasive, non-intrusive person you could ever believe in your life. He would never offer you an opinion. Now, back to the book, okay? Mary Lee and I are now married. We're living in Madison. I'm at UW-Madison. We take weekends and go up to their farm that they have now up in Baraboo, Breezy Hill Farm. And now they're organic dairy goat farmers. Milk, 50 goats a day by hand, we did. And then he has an orchard, and he doesn't use any chemicals, but that doesn't work with the orchard. You know, but it worked with everything. Okay, so we go up to visit them, and they can see that we're fighting all the time, right? So one morning after breakfast, Peter says, hey, let's go on a walk, Tim. So we leave the house, and as soon as we get out of the house, I mean, we were not 20 feet away from the front door. Now remember, this is a guy that lets me run over his Garden Way research rather than offer an opinion. He puts his arm around me, and he said this. He said, Tim... God wants you to be the head of your home. Long hair, earring, my wife has a nose ring, you know, we're like, cool. So evolved. All right. God wants you to be the head of your home. In his kindness, God used my faithful brother-in-law, Peter, to say those simple words which produced the fruit over time of exploding my conceit and leading me down a road of repentance by which Mary Lee and I, over many years, came to love and to live out loud Scripture's commands concerning man and woman, husband and wife. The road of repentance was long and winding. Mary Lee was not always an eager fellow traveler. And so now when we heard we were going to have a boy, I was afraid to tell Mary Lee how much fear I had. I felt ashamed at my fear and kept it a secret from my lover. How could I admit my response to having a boy was radically different than my response to having a girl? People were people, after all. And when I finally spoke of my fear to Mary Lee, she was irritated. Why do you think you can't raise a boy? How's it any different from raising a girl? We've done fine with Heather. Why are you afraid of having a boy? I crawled back into my hole with a red face and my tail between my legs. What was wrong with me? Didn't I know raising a boy was just like raising a girl? Except, of course, you had to think about circumcision. And so why was I afraid to have a son? Well, the reason was I myself did not know how to be a man. And so how on earth could I be a father to a son? What was a man? What was a son? What was a father? It's 30 years later now, and our son Joseph is all growed up. Now he himself is the father of a son. During those 30 years, I've learned a lot about being a father, and one of the key things I've learned is that I'm not alone in my fears. Many of us don't have a clue how to raise a son because we were never taught what manhood is. Thus, fatherhood is mysterious and intimidating, particularly when we face raising a son. Nevertheless, life goes on. It's the thing I've noticed about life. (laughs) It goes on. Marriages are vowed, wives get pregnant, and last time I checked, about half of all pregnancies end with a baby boy. And that boy will look to his father to learn the nature of manhood, sonship, and fatherhood. Do you recognize the weight of fatherhood?
Do you see the work cut out for you in becoming a father and teaching fatherhood to your son? Likely, one of the reasons we're fearful of fatherhood is we have come to recognize the sins and failures of our own fathers. And we're afraid that we will repeat them. But realizing God is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name, we surely can't be surprised that every man ever born has failed in this glorious task. That is, if failure is defined by our Heavenly Father's perfections. There's a quote I've become fond of. Children begin by loving their parents. As they grow older, they judge them. Sometimes they forgive them. May I gently say to you that it's time to forgive your father and move on to the task at hand. Soon enough, your own sons will be working to forgive you. And don't worry so very much about your own children judging your fatherhood because God himself is keeping perfect record of what we do right and wrong and the good we do and the good we fail to do. And so will we step out by faith and give ourselves to the fatherhood we have been dignified with by the Father Almighty? Yes, we will fail. (laughs) But wouldn't it be better to fail trying? (laughs) Some of my most precious memories are of my father failing while trying to be my good father. When I was a little boy, I had a brother, one year older, who was my perfect companion. I remember playing with him in the living room, making tents by draping blankets and bedspreads over the backs of chairs and pulling them over to the back of the sofa. And then we'd climb underneath the blankets and we'd play. It was a tent for us. Danny was the perfect older brother and I was his tag team. Where he went, I was always happy to follow. What he did, I did. What games he played, I played with him. Brother and brother growing up together in peace and joy. And then tragedy struck. Danny was diagnosed with leukemia. And one year later he died. And I was inconsolable at four years old. We had family devotions each night. And I distinctly remember thinking that God could do anything he wanted. And that he'd promised to answer our prayers So each night. When it was my turn to pray following Bible reading, I would ask God to raise Danny from the dead. This was my habitual prayer. Think about the knife that must have cut through the hearts of dad and mud, and mud is what we called my mother. Everybody calls her mud. Think about the knife that must have cut through the hearts of dad and mud and my older brother and sister as Danny's younger four-year-old brother asked God to bring Danny back from the dead. Let me tell you, right now I am crying as I write this. The sadness was horrible, and I wanted it over, as I'm sure everyone else did also. And listen, people, death is a terrible enemy. Don't you ever buy the callous wickedness of this world that has no pain in death. That's a sign of wickedness in Psalm 73. People who are alive to God... See the enemy of death and hate it. And it's people who have no faith who say, I'm not afraid to die. Because it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. That's another verse I learned from my father. Death is a terrible enemy. Seeing my own pain, dad did his best to love me back to health. He got an idea. He and I would carve a boat together out of a block of wood and then we'd attach a miniature electric battery-driven motor to the boat's stern and take it to a lake and watch it putt-putt across the water. And so Dad bought a block of wood and some knives and took me out to the country where he and I sat on a large log and we began to carve. It wasn't a one-day job. The block of wood we intended to turn into a boat was thick and long and it would take many hours of carving to hollow it out and form its bow and stern. After our first day of carving, we went home, 
But a day later, I broke out in the most awful rash all over my body, but particularly high up in my legs. It turns out Dad had sat us down on a log covered with poison ivy, and I'd been wearing shorts, so I was covered in poison ivy, and that was the end of our carving a boat together. It took me some time to get over my oozing poison ivy rashes in all the most tender places. To this day, I have a terrible reaction to poison ivy. What was Dad's failure? Well, for starters, he sat his four-year-old son wearing shorts down on the top of poison ivy. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Then, too, he gave up on carving a boat with me, and that was a great disappointment. Sad, sad, sad. About six years later, Dad and Mud lost their third son. Another son died in between these two sons. So about six years later, he lost his third son. But this time, he was my father's oldest son. National Merit Scholar, sophomore in philosophy at Swarthmore, godly, and he died. He was dad's pride and joy, and and let me tell you, I wasn't. Okay? It's still that way. Our family was in agony, and dad was so overwhelmed by the pain that he spent a good bit of his time out on the road itinerating. He was in demand as a Sunday school convention and conference and intervarsity campus and summer camp speaker. And so dad filled up his schedule and traveled. Mud was dying emotionally. My older sister Deborah was the child hardest hit this time since Joe was to her as Danny had been to me. But where was dad? He wasn't there for us, as in not there. And when he was home, he wasn't there either. One of my memories was how when he was in town, he'd get home from work and sit in his chrome and leather recliner reading. And when I'd get home, he'd call out to me, how was your day, Tim? And I'd answer, fine, how was yours, Dad? And he'd answer, fine. And that was it, and that was supposed to be it. Once or twice, I broke the rule and said more than fine. And I would ask him a follow-up question like, no, Dad, really, how was your day? What happened? And my efforts at escalating our intimacy were useless. I knew as far as Dad was concerned, I'd gone off the reservation because he was completely unresponsive. One time I tried to take a besetting sin to him for his counsel, and it's telling that I use mud to be my intermediary. I asked her to ask him for me what he thought I should do about the sin. A couple days later, she reported Dad had told her to tell me there are some things a man has to figure out for himself, and that was it. You know, speaking of Dad's failures, the Bible records a key moment in the life of Noah and his sons that we should read. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now, you guys, you know that the Bible refers to Noah as that righteous man Noah, don't you? And so that righteous man got drunk and something was going on with nakedness and sexual in that tent, which was wicked. Do you understand? We don't know exactly the nature of it, but he was drunk and he's that righteous man. So the best righteous men commit terrible sins. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And what did Ham do? Ha! Hey, go in the tent, check out Dad. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders, and they walked backwards. They walked backwards, and they covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And so he said, cursed be Canaan. Who's Canaan? Canaan is the son 
of the son that did that. And so father and son stand in solidarity in the economy of God. And so he cursed this man's son. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Am I not doing precisely what Ham did? Why is it right for me to speak publicly about my dad's failures? And not just to my family, if any of them ever read this, but also to you publicly, and at a time when my father is not here to defend himself. Okay? He's gone to rest in heaven with the Lord. It may be wrong. But here's my reasoning and thinking that it's good and necessary to do this, even that if dad were still here, he'd approve of what I'm doing. If you, good reader, think my dad was perfect, you may be tempted to think the only sons who can become good fathers are those who had good fathers. But there are no good. Good in the sense of God being good, that is, there are no good fathers. All of us are sinners, and our sin will show itself in our fatherhood all the time. The life of a good father is the life of the man who realizes that only God is good, and it pleases God for us to fail in the right direction. That's the nature of the life of faith. A Christian is a man who has committed himself by faith to failing in the right direction. As the years have passed, I've come to love my dad most for these very failures. It's not that I no longer wish we'd finish carving the boat. It's not that I no longer wish that dad had talked with me about my besetting sin. It's that even in these failures, I learned the nature of the love of a Christian son for his Christian father. It wasn't that dad sat me down in poison ivy, but that dad had an idea that carving a boat together would heal my grief. And maybe his grief too. Daddy tried. But what about his avoidance of intimacy and road trips after his third and eldest son Joe died? What about his failure to work with me to overcome my besetting sin? Well, looking back on it, I see how easy it would have been for dad to give in to his overwhelming grief over Joe's death and just simply leave his wife and children entirely. The divorce statistics for parents who lose children to death are horrendous. We've had one recently. We had a couple. Three children died. What happened? When the, after they left this church, they're gone. They're done. They're divorced. And yet my father and mother persevered. And I've come to realize that dad and mud both had such gaping wounds that it was a victory they stayed together at all. Their commitment to marriage was faith. Very weak faith at times, and therefore, greater faith than I've ever been called by God to exercise myself. Who am I to judge my father? Who am I to judge my father? No, I will not judge my father. I will love him. I will love him. I will forgive him. I will pray that my heavenly father never calls on me to demonstrate the faith he called on my father and mother to demonstrate. What terrible suffering they went through. Here's a poem Dad wrote about this suffering right after his oldest son Joe died. It's called A Psalm on the Death of an 18-Year-Old Son. 
What waste, Lord, this ointment precious here outpoured. Is treasure great beyond my mind to think for years until this midnight? It was safe, contained, awaiting careful use, now broken, wasted, lost. The world is poor, so poor it needs each drop of such a store. This treasure spent might feed a multitude for all their days and then yield more. This world is poor, it's poorer now, the treasure's lost. I breathe its lingering fragrance, soon even that will cease. What purpose served? The act is void of reason, sense, Lord, madmen do such deeds, not sane. The sane man hoards his treasure, spends with care, if good to feed the poor or else to feed himself. Let me alone, Lord, you've taken from me what I'd give your world. I cannot see such waste that you should take what poor men need. You have a heaven full of treasure. Could you not wait to exercise your claim on this? Oh, spare me, Lord. Forgive that I may see beyond this world, beyond myself, your sovereign plan. Or seeing not, may trust you, spoiler of my treasure. Have mercy, Lord. Here is my quit claim. In other words, now I'll shut up. That's what here is my quit claim is. Brothers and sisters, our fathers are weak. We are weak too. God is strong. It took about a decade, but Dad came home in time for my two younger brothers to enjoy him fully. My image of David and Nathan as they grew up was Nathan sitting in Dad's lap or over on the fireplace next to Dad talking with him while David lay on the floor behind Dad's chair reading. It was a tender sight. Beyond David and Nathan, though, Dad and Mud healed together, and I had the full benefit of Dad's wisdom and counsel as I got married, had our first two children, and entered the pastorate. When Mary Lee and I had our 10th wedding anniversary, Dad and Mud offered to come up to Wisconsin, where we were serving in the ministry up there, north of Madison, and to take care of our two children, Heather and Joseph, while Mary Lee and I used two nights that they gave us down in Chicago at the Marriott on North Michigan Avenue. Dad offered to preach for me, and before I left, I took a small yellow post-it note, and I wrote, I love you, Dad. And I stuck it to the top of the pulpit, right here, so that when he began preaching, that's what he would say. You can see how much I love my dad, right? 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 Is it because he was perfect? Is it because he did everything right? No, it's because sinner though he was, I hope to rise to his level of godliness before I die. And I even dare to think that the places he did fail us are the very places God will use in my life to help other fathers become better fathers. Beyond that, I've spent much of my ministry loving men and calling the other pastors and elders I work with also to love men who are drowning in father hunger. How could I have seen it if I had not felt it myself? And there's no question much of my commitment to help these men and to get other men to help them comes from my memory of dad being gone those years after Joe's death. Recently, I exhorted a man in his 50s that he must not die a victim. He must not die a victim. And I was pointing out that he'd spent his life up until now being bitter about hurts suffered in the past, and that if he didn't repent of his bitterness, he would die a victim. 
What a faithless thing that is, to die feeling sorry for ourselves because of our father's failures, for instance. Can this possibly be the life of Christian faith and hope and fatherhood? Will you join me? This is a little weird because it's a book, right? But this is what I wrote now. Will you join me in studying what the Bible says and shows us about the fatherhood of God and man? There's a table back there, and I didn't say this in the first service. There's a table to sign up for the conference this summer. The theme is the fatherhood of God and man. Sign up this morning. Get all your friends to come. This is the crying need of the world today. Of course our fathers were failures, and so were their fathers, and their fathers' fathers before them. Fact is, we can trace our own father's failures all the way back through history and back through Scripture itself. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you are the adopted son of the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And so you have nothing to complain about, really. Yes! He, he is perfect. He is perfect. He never fails us. He is not fickle. He doesn't avoid intimacy with us. In fact, he says what? I know it from my father. He says that he is a friend who sticks closer than any brother. And he knows our weakness. Let me read to you in closing from... One of the most precious texts of scripture to me. I used to have it memorized. I don't think I still do. But I have it memorized enough that it's in the King James. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide. Now, now let me stop there. You realize that if your mother were watching you live your life right now, she'd never stop chiding you. So it's not that there aren't things to chide you perpetually about. Those of you who are 70 as well as those of you who are 10. If God wanted to, God could never stop chiding us. But the Bible says that he will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hasn't dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For we, he knoweth our frame, he remembereth. Oh yeah, they're dust. Not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but everybody else. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes, for the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. We're all on the way for the place not even remembering us. Do we even remember? Glenn. He's gone. We don't even remember him. He's gone. Now, you know this isn't true. But this is true of you. It's true of me. We're gone. And the place doesn't remember us. Right? But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Now listen, 
What the Bible's saying here to you is not that the way that you please God and earn his favor is by keeping his commandments. What it's saying here is that if you give up your self-reliance, if you repent and turn to Jesus in faith, the evidence of that will be that you fear God and that you keep his commandments. So if you try real hard to keep his commandments, you will have none of these blessings. Until you come to the end of your keeping his commandments and despair and throw yourself before God and say, I repent, cleanse me with the blood of Jesus. And then guess what? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And you have this amazing thing that even though you can still hear your mother chiding you forever, God accepts you. You're washed. You're clean. You have no fear of his disapproval and his relentlessly being angry with you anymore. And that's why I keep coming back to the closest thing to transcendence we have in preaching in America today, which is the memory of Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said about something as trivial as leaving racism behind, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we're free at last. We don't have any preachers saying that today about the gospel. But that is the truth of coming to Christ. It's an amazing thing that once we stop being precious with all the hurts of everybody against us, once we say, I'm sick to death of being a victim, I'm going to begin to be a moral agent and to act. And then our first action is what? Repentance. And then once you've repented to God, who cares what the person sitting next to you thinks of you? They already knew that you were a sinner. Who cares what your children think of you? The life of Christian is a life of ever new beginnings. And so what I want to hold out to you today in the name of the living God is his promises. He will not always chide, nor does he keep his anger forever. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is his, I I can't remember it. So great is his mercy toward them that fear him. And then as far as the east is for the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children. So the Lord that pities them that fear him. Listen, one last thing and we're done. In about 1985, I think, Dad died. And you saw how hard it was for me to get through reading this, right? You have no idea how hard it was when he died. It really was just, just, just awful. And it was awful because my mother was inconsolable and I was, it was just awful. And to make matters worse, we left Mayo that night. I couldn't sleep all night and the helicopters were bringing patients in all night. And it was like, just like being in NOM, you know, all night, you know. Helicopters aren't a positive thing to me. And the next day we got in our car and I was so ditz brain from grief that we ran out of gas in the middle of the farmland of southeastern Minnesota. And so I'm climbing over fences and fields, running across. I finally find an old farm, farmhouse. And there's a widow, older, living there. And I said, do you have any gas? She said, well, go out in the barn and say. And I'm crying as I'm talking to her. I just, it was just horrible. And about two years later, it occurred to me that God, what? That God is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And that I don't know what God is like because I had an earthly father, but I know what my father is like because I have, present tense, a heavenly father. And I realized that my unrestrained grief that continued and continued and continued was idolatry. 
The only reason I had a father was so that I would see some manifestation of God's character. And here I was worshiping my father and not giving glory to God. And so listen, the point of this is not to get us all like sentimental and gishy-goo and whoppy-poo, you know, and like this is Father's Day and in a few weeks we'll have Mother's Day. We'll give pink carnations to all the mothers. How many children do you have? The point of this is who made sex? Who made marriage? Who makes us able to have children? Who gives us the joy of what's sitting in your lap? Not your dad, not your mother, not your godly grandmother. It's God. Every good and perfect gift falleth down from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights. So stop looking at your navel. It isn't pretty. Look at God and begin to fail by faith in the right direction. Okay? Be a Christian. That's what a Christian is. Okay? And you women, don't nag your husband. He already knows he's a failure. Tell him something he doesn't know. Tell him about the greatness of our Heavenly Father. Remind him that God forgives him for his failures with your children. Why do you want an accuser as a wife? Boy. Okay, okay. I told you I'd stop. I'll stop. All right, let's pray.